This is The Lead from New Lines magazine. We'll be taking a quick break over the next two weeks while we prepare for season five. In the meantime, we'll be re-upping some of our favourite episodes from last season. Today, we wanted to share an episode we released in November, but which might be even more relevant today. When we recorded Prisoners of the Gaza War, the prospect of a ceasefire or a hostage exchange was still mostly hypothetical, and the plight of Palestinian detainees in Israel had largely gone unnoticed by international media. Since then, Hamas has released 105 more of its hostages in exchange for 240 Palestinian detainees, three quarters of whom had been held without charge. Their reports of serious human rights abuses in detention became a major international story. Nevertheless, Israel still holds thousands of Palestinians, and 129 of Hamas's hostages remain unaccounted for. Oded Lifshitz, whose daughter Sharon you'll hear from at the beginning of the episode, is very sadly still among them. On the 7th of October, I was on my way to a day out in north of England with family, my son and my husband, when I opened a news feed and found out that things are kicking off between Israel and Gaza. My parents live about a mile from Gaza, so it's kind of a routine that when things kick off, I call my mum and she didn't answer. And so I called my brother who told me that there's been a breakage at the border and uh, that was it. They unfolded from there. About an hour later, there were already videos of military men and terrorists with machine guns standing just behind my parents' house. The army did not come to the kibbutz for over eight hours. They came and killed and looted and kidnapped unknown numbers at that time. By the evening, we knew that my parents were among the hostages. The days after that have just been one big haze. I woke up two days later and just thought I have to talk to whoever will listen because this is such a crazy situation. That's Sharon Lifshitz, an Israeli citizen living in the UK whose elderly parents, Yokoved and Oded Lifshitz, were among the hundreds kidnapped by Hamas during the attacks. Yokoved was released on the 23rd of October, and the moment she shook the hand of her former captor became one of the iconic images of the war. We were not even sure she was alive up to that point. My mum is slowly getting better. She's an amazing spirit and an inspiration for all of us in her family and for so many people around the world. My father, we still don't know. We know that he is in Gaza, but we don't know if he's alive or dead. We know for my mum that he was injured in his hand when Hamas broke in. So we are a, we are continuing to speak to whoever would listen in government and in media and try to advocate for their return. There are about 77 people that are held hostage for my kibbutz, where I grew up, out of 450. Many more are dead, many more um, are traumatized. There's not one family who has not been affected. Have you been in contact with any of the other families who've had relatives kidnapped, both from your community and from other communities? Yes, obviously, this is a very small community. We know each other for many years. I've lived away from the community for many years, but I come to visit at least once a year. I was there in August. Um, 
today, for example, I attended a funeral online because I'm back in the UK now of a woman called Bracha Levinson, a wonderful, kind, gentle soul. She was uh, my carer when I was a child for quite a few years um, and had a wonderful smile. Um, and she was murdered on that day and her execution was was uh, broadcast or live on her channel in Facebook. That was she was such a gentle, kind woman. I can't even tell you. So we have been to many funerals. On I attended most of them online, and the survivors are mostly in Eilat. The kibbutz itself is shut down. It's a military zone. Many of the families have been urging the Israeli government to pursue a policy of everyone for everyone. So they would release all Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails in exchange for the release of the hostages. And I wondered whether you have any thoughts on that. I have just one thought, and that is very clearly that the government in Israel, but also my government here in the UK, the government of the US, the government of Qatar, of Egypt, of every player must do absolutely everything for the 242 hostages being held in Gaza. Do you feel that they haven't been doing enough so far? Proof is in the pudding. My mum came out of nowhere all of a sudden. I don't know if tomorrow we will be told that there is a, a exchange of hostages or exchange of hostages for a ceasefire. I am for everything that work. I'm petrified of any continuation of violence that also threatens my people and that is hurting civilians. What are your worries for the coming days? My worries is that the civilian hostages will not be the number one priorities of the government. And what are your hopes? My hope is that all of them will be released. My hope is that there will be a solution Hamas has declared now that they are clearly not a partner that is possible for peace. The Palestinian people are, and I think that we must work towards a solution and towards a possibility of both Palestinians and Israeli living a decent life next to one another. Welcome to The Lead, the New Alliance magazine podcast. I'm Joshua Martin, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest events, ideas, and personalities from around the world. Sharon's father, Oded Lifshitz, is one of an estimated 240 hostages who have been held by Hamas in Gaza since October 7th. But despite the outpouring of international sympathy, at home the Israeli government has all but ignored them, and the desperate families left behind. But their dogged refusal to let the world forget is putting increasing pressure on the embattled administration of Benjamin Netanyahu, whose government seems intent on revenge rather than rescue. As the war in Gaza rages, claiming thousands of lives, some family members have begun to demand the government trade everyone for everyone, releasing all Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli prisons in exchange for Hamas's hostages. It's a plan that has captured the imagination of international media. But is it ever likely to happen? And what does it all mean for the coming days and weeks? I'll be talking to Noga Tarnopolsky, a Jerusalem-based journalist, about how the staunch advocacy of family members like Sharon has changed Israeli domestic politics. I'll also be talking to Muzna Shihabi, 
a former advisor to PLO negotiators in the years following the Oslo Accords, about the desperate situation for Palestinian detainees in Israel, for whom a prisoner swap may likewise be their last best hope. But right now I'm here with my colleague and co-host Lisa Goldman, who's covered the situation in Israel and Palestine for many years. Lisa, how are you doing today? I'm as well as can be expected, as they say. How are you? Pretty much the same, to be honest, yeah. So I'll be talking about this in more depth in my conversation with Noga, but I wanted to ask you about this everyone for everyone slogan that I talked about with Sharon. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I think people are just desperate to get the hostages back. And in the past, Israel has a long history of trading enormous numbers of Palestinian prisoners for a relatively small number of Israeli prisoners. And, you know, Israelis are absolutely paralyzed right now with grief and shock over the abductions, especially not only because old people and children were taken, but because some families lost everyone. And also a few children were taken without their parents, very small children, like three, four years old. And it's a small country, so everyone knows someone who lost someone on October 7th. So there's just this desperation to get them back at any cost. And you think it is just desperation? You don't think it's necessarily a workable plan there, a prisoner swap this time? I mean, it's workable, I suppose, in in theory, but Netanyahu has to be willing to make big compromises, you know, and he's indicated that he's just not willing to do that. So he seems to think that he can release the hostages by get get them released by military force, which, you know, if you just take one step back and think logically, it's it's obviously not possible, given the, the network of Hamas tunnels and they don't know, you know, we assume the prisoners and our, the hostages are all, you know, spread out. There's the, the tunnel network is a big unknown for the Israeli army. They might know everything that goes on in Gaza above ground, but they clearly do not know what's going on below ground. So I don't see how they expect to find those hostages and free them with the army. I think a lot of people will be very surprised to know that the government has responded so poorly because it seems like such an obvious misstep for the already unpopular leader of a nation in mourning, doesn't it? So so one of the interesting and sort of horrifying things that Netanyahu, one of the approaches he seems to be taking is to is to practice wedge politics between the families of the hostages and and the rest of the country by claiming that they're prioritizing the rescue of their relatives at the expense of a of a a necessary military campaign to eliminate Hamas. And so Netanyahu even went so far as to try to plant fake relatives of hostages at a meeting of the some representatives of the hostages' families, and you know, and to have those Netany- those people who were later revealed to be Netanyahu supporters who don't actually have any family in who were taken captive on October seventh, and some you know official prime minister's document was released saying that the families of the hostages support the army and the prime minister in their pursuit of a military solution against Hamas, even if it means they'd have to make the greatest sacrifice of all. And the rest of the hostage families were on Israeli television news in the studio saying, we've never heard of these people who came into the meeting between the representatives of the families and the prime minister. We didn't sign that document and we wouldn't have agreed to sign that document. So you have seen some small, some indications that Netanyahu is trying to sort of mobilize or weaponize his very far right base with the, against the families of the hostages and, and politicizing the whole issue. And this could partly be because so many of the hostages come from the left wing or liberal left kibbutzim, which are you know anti Netanyahu and have been very active in these in the demonstrations against the judicial reform that his government proposes and is pursuing. 
plight of the hostages, and the government's seeming indifference to it, have had seismic implications for Israeli politics. To get a better sense of how the political situation is changing, I spoke to Israeli journalist Nogotana Polsky, and I began by asking her why the government hasn't been more forthcoming with the families of the hostages. Well, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry to laugh. To say that the government hasn't been forthcoming with these poor families is really an understatement. It's part of a really wide range of failures in terms of Israeli civil society and this government. The truth is that not only has the government not been forthcoming with them, and the government is just failing utterly to communicate with them, but it's not clear what the government is doing, if anything, practical to get these hostages back. 241, at least, people were kidnapped from Israel into Gaza by Hamas terrorists as part of the attack, as a planned part of the attack. Nobody knows how many are alive. It's unclear what condition they're in. About four people, four women actually, were released in a very haphazard way in two releases early in this crisis. And the Israeli army managed to liberate a soldier who had been taken. And so she was freed. So five people, five women actually, have been um, released in different ways. It's a few weeks ago now and nothing since. So these are families of 241 people who feel desperate and who feel abandoned. I think it really is a multi-level failure on the part of the government. The government has been inept in, I'll, I'll just share with you kind of internal small things, but it will give you an idea. The prime minister for the first two weeks didn't have anyone in his office in charge of hostage matters. Then he named a guy called Gal Hirsch, who is an indicted criminal and an old crony of the prime minister, and he was disgraced in his military career. He took over this job at a pretty good salary, and then, according to the families, did nothing and did no outreach to them. Eventually, the first time he had a Zoom with them, when they started to complain, he muted them. Wow. Yeah. The main news out of that event was that the family started posting on social media images of, you know, that sign on Zoom that says you've been muted. The host has muted you. But anyway, then the minister appeared to appoint a second person who is Yossi Cohen, the former head of the Mossad. It was unclear what he was doing, but he went on a trip to Qatar, all very mysterious. So no one knew what he was doing. And then in the last few days, Again, the Office of Prime Minister has intimated that it's about to appoint another political crony of the Prime Minister, a woman who has um, a title that sounds pretty good, but is actually meaningless. She's Minister of Intelligence. And so the end result is that these families feel forsaken and abandoned doubly. They feel that the basic security of their loved ones was betrayed and that they have now been betrayed, and they only hear from the government this very bellicose talk about destroying Hamas as Israel gets more and more international criticism for its military action in Gaza, and they're not hearing about any positive motion to free their loved ones. So 
you know, we're recording this on the day that marks exactly one month since this happened. And when you see all these pictures of just regular people, you know, some are babies just a few months old, some are very elderly, and you realize that the state betrayed them to the extent that they couldn't sleep in peace and quiet without fear for life and limb on a Saturday morning, and that they were stolen from their country and their country hasn't gotten them back in a full month. It's a feeling of just absolute impotence. And what the families are feeling is much worse. There was a minute of silence in memory of those killed and in honor of these hostages who are still being held. And it was not organized by the government of Israel. It was organized by civil society organizations on behalf of these families, and the government had nothing to do with it. To that extent, the government is detached from the people in Israel. Yes, that's what I sort of wanted to ask you about, actually, because certainly the protesters who've been camped outside government buildings initially didn't seem to be getting that much attention from broader civil society, but that's changing, right? There's been a lot more attention and a lot more dissatisfaction with the government policy recently than there was, say, two, three weeks ago. I think that is an accurate depiction of the view from where you're sitting, because these families in the last two weeks or so have have gone kind of global in their demands and have been all over the world. And they've started this campaign of putting posters up with portraits of their loved ones. And I think that has raised awareness, um, in some cases not very happily, abroad. But in Israel, these families have been in this, I would say they've been at the forefront of media coverage and at the forefront of local news coverage from the start. But as the time passed and they felt that the government was not responding to them then yes, their complaints have gotten a lot sharper. It hasn't just been heartbreak, you know, where's my baby? It's been, what the hell are you doing? At the same time, the this effort has gone international. So actually on the international thing, many of the hostages and their families are dual citizens <laughs> and they've turned to other governments for help. And I wonder about that. I mean, do you think that foreign governments are any better positioned than the Israeli government to make progress on negotiations? I don't know. Some of these hostages are dual citizens. Some are simply foreigners. But I don't know. I mean, it's a sign of the absolute breakdown of trust in the Israeli government and of confidence that anyone who has dual citizenship is begging the other government for help. The Americans have been particularly present in this space. President Biden held a Zoom with American families or families of American citizens. So the Americans are being very active. But the fact of the matter is that for now, nobody has gotten anyone out. The Thai government has negotiated with Hamas, with Egypt, and with Iran. And Iran is the top sponsor and supporter of Hamas. And the Thai government you know, without really blinking, simply sent a very specifically chosen delegation of only Muslims, only Thai Muslims, to Tehran to negotiate. A few days ago, the prime minister of Thailand claimed 
that he had seen proof-of-life pictures of about 20 Thai citizens who he said were alive and being held in Gaza. But that's as far as we've heard. So I'd like to move on to talk a little bit more about Netanyahu, if that's okay. Because it does seem that the hostages are quite inconvenient for him. Because, you know, he's currently trying to salvage what he can of his political career through a rally around the flag effect. But the captives and their families complicate that significantly, right? Like, they're making quite a number of quite tough political demands. But they also mean that military operations within Gaza are a lot more challenging because revenge is much more straightforward than a rescue mission. And yet he can't easily dismiss them either. So it's a very fine line for him to walk right now. Yeah, although it's it's I think the the concept we've kind of been tiptoeing against the heart of the matter this whole so far in our conversation. And the heart of the matter is the complete abdication of its duties of the Israeli government in a much wider and deeper sense than just in this crisis. So let's take a few steps back. Netanyahu is Israel's longest serving prime minister. And he lost power in 2021. He was replaced briefly for about a year and a little bit by a difficult coalition of left and right that basically existed just to move him out of the way. And then he came roaring back and he established his new government December 29th, 2022. Within a week, he basically had announced his intentions to perpetrate a coup d'etat. And that is the point we have to go back to. On January 4th, his justice minister announced a plan to basically eviscerate the Israeli judiciary, which is the only real check and balance on power of the Israeli executive. And this was a miscalculation on his part. It's absolutely related to the fact that he is on trial for corruption charges. And this launched a year, basically 10 months of huge protests, hundreds of thousands of Israelis protesting regularly, week after week, against Netanyahu. The police chief of Israel at one point estimated that 7 million people had protested in Israel that has a population of 10 million. And Netanyahu, in a clumsy and bumbling and authoritarian type way, pressed ahead with his plan. His government's only real policy initiative was this judicial takeover. And he pushed ahead. And the pressure was not just from hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. The pressure was from titans of industry, from the academy, from, you know, international partners of Israel. And for 10 months, Israel was really teetering between having the chance to pursue a future as a member of the democratic family of nations, however flawed its democracy and other democracies are, or falling over the precipice and becoming an authoritarian state flat out. And so the country itself in many ways ceased to function. The government absolutely ceased to function during this whole period. Now, there were many who warned again and again, you are putting our nation in danger. Our enemies perceive this as a crack up of the state. 
I should hasten to say, Netanyahu did not run his re-election campaign on the basis of this judicial overhaul. He ran talking about security. Actually, ironically, these days, he ran talking quite a bit about governability, border security. At the time, you know, on October 6th, one day before the Hamas attack, Netanyahu was an extraordinarily unpopular prime minister, and his government was basically dysfunctional because all of its resources were being put to satisfy niche and sometimes extremist demands made by his coalition partners. And all of these partners are people who Netanyahu needed to satisfy absolutely because he has a narrow coalition, 64 out of 120 seats in parliament. And if he loses them, he loses power. And let's remember again, the guy is on trial for corruption charges right now. So Israel was in a very fragile state. And since then, the absolute worst versions of all of the warnings that were made during this period have become reality. I think it's fair to say that in every sector of society, people are afraid, people feel that there's no state to back them up, and and people feel that they really are living through just something that is such a nightmare, it feels unreal. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of those dynamics that you were describing, they are still at play, right? Like Netanyahu having a lot of very fringe far-right coalition partners. Just the other day, one of his partners said that they should think about using nuclear weapons in Gaza. And I believe Netanyahu has just suspended him and he has been back at work, right? Well, so this is an excellent example of the entire situation. You're talking about a guy called... Chai Eliyahu, whose title is Minister for Heritage, which, as you can hear, is a made-up title. It never existed before. It was part of Netanyahu's co- you know, coalition construction that he gave a party that is, that's called Jewish Power and that is made up of racial supremacists, nationalists, messianists. I mean, an absolute fringe party that has never held power of any sort before. But Netanyahu bolstered them during the election specifically so they would pass this threshold and make it into the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament. And then he could have them as these sort of partners who would support him no matter what, because they would know that without him, they don't exist. They are very marginal. So this Minister for Heritage is one of these guys. And what happened is he was asked in an interview with an ultra-right, bizarro radio station. So he was asked by the interviewer, well, if you say that there are no innocent people in Gaza, right, which is horrible enough. So if you say that there are no innocent people in Gaza, we could just like throw an atom bomb on them and be done with it. And this guy, the minister, replied, yeah, that's an option. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. So Netanyahu initially said that his words obviously don't represent the government, that he would be suspended. But that is not something that exists under Israeli law. You cannot suspend a minister. Right. The prime minister does have the power to fire any minister. And this minister has not been fired. And he won't be. I I keep coming back to this. And I really think it's important. And I feel like this is an important lesson from Israel 
to the rest of the democratic world. Okay, why can't fire or won't fire a minister's threatening an atom bomb, right? Something completely demented, an atom bomb on a neighboring population. He can't because Netanyahu is on trial and his only hope is somehow to do away with the Israeli judiciary, to cancel this trial. And the only people who will support him in this are lunatic extremists who know that without him, they'll never be in power. So Israel itself as a state has been hijacked by a desperate prime minister who is embraced by extremists. And that is what we're experiencing here. And that helps explain, I suppose, then why the situation with the hostages is being so mishandled, because Netanyahu is trying to spin all these different, you know, far right plates and fundamentally, I guess, doesn't see that he has very much to gain. You know, it's hard to answer you. I think it's important to say that the hostage families, the family members of the hostages themselves number, let's say, in the several thousands, but their cause has horrified the entire nation and really unified the nation. And I think it's also important to remember, terror hits anybody, right? And so among these hostages, you have Bedouins who are Muslims who live in the South. You have other Arabs. You have Druze citizens. You have Jewish citizens. You have foreigners who were visiting. You really have among the dead and among the hostages, you have like a little synecdoche of everybody who was in Israel on October 7th. So the experience for Israelis has been one of unity and empathy, but that doesn't include the government. And I think that has been really hard to explain to to people abroad because there's an assumption that if Israelis are unified about something, that means that they've kind of you used this phrase before, you know, they've, what did you say? Something about under the flag? Rally around the flag, yes. That's right. That's right. You said they rallied around the flag. Well, he's been hoping for that, right? It, it's not turned out the way. He... I think it's hard for me to say what he wanted, but he certainly has not wanted to appear as inept as he has, in fact, appeared. That's for sure. And I think what Netanyahu certainly wanted was for people to rally around him as the leader. And that has not happened. There was a poll that came out about, it'll be two weeks ago, that showed that by the Israel Democracy Institute, that is a very respected think tank in Jerusalem. And it showed that 7% of Israelis thought Netanyahu was the best leader to lead the country in war. Yeah. Seven. And among right-wing voters, in other words, among voters who had supported this coalition that governs, 10%. So his support has basically collapsed. No. So I wanted to ask you about this everyone for everyone slogan that many of the families have adopted, uh, not all. They're proposing that the government should release all the Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails, which I believe is currently around 10,000, in exchange for the release of all the hostages. And that seems like quite a radical demand. And obviously, it's received a good deal of international media attention as a result of that. But I'm interested to know how it's been received in Israel. Yeah, so 
there was there was at one point the intimation that one of the Hamas leaders had said, we'll exchange the hostages for all of our security prisoners. And it spread like wildfire, which more than anything else should indicate to you how absolutely desperate Israelis are, that even a wisp of a rumor like that gave people just a tiny flicker of hope. Yeah. and I, I spoke to Sharon Lifshitz actually just yesterday, whose mother was released by Hamas and whose father remains in their custody. And I asked her much the same question. And she said, well, if it gets them back, sure. Right. So Israelis are desperate. And Sharon Lifshitz is a good example of someone who's torn up like that. And this slogan was adopted by the families that was all for all. Give them back all these prisoners and give us our loved family members back. But that was never a real offer made by any real leader. You know, I I can't even tell you it was a bit of misinformation. It was simply somebody in an interview saying that Sinwar, one of the Hamas leaders, had said this, but no one has even heard Sinwar say it. Fact of the matter is, to my knowledge, the offer has never really existed. As astonishing as it may sound, I think that if this were a real offer, I think that the clamor for it would be so intense that the government would at least have to consider it. Noga Tarnopolsky there in Jerusalem. Lisa, like Noga said, there's been a lot of sympathy for the hostages across most of Israeli society, but it hasn't been true quite across the board, has it? No, it hasn't been. And that's something that's very difficult to report, because I'm sure it's true that the vast majority of Israelis just want those hostages brought home. The question is, I think, and the divide is at what cost, at what price, you know? So you've seen some Israelis saying, yeah, well, let's make whatever trade we need, because Israel has thousands of Palestinians in in their jails from Gaza and the West Bank. Let's make whatever trade is necessary, 5,000 of ours for 5,000 Palestinians for 240 Israelis, no problem. And by the way, those 240 Israelis, of course, include an estimated up to 40 Thai agricultural workers who were taken prisoner on on October 7th, and some Palestinians of Israel. So, but Israelis are saying, you know, whatever it takes, you know, trade however many prisoners we have for for the ones that are held in Gaza. And But you've seen some people say, yeah, make the trade and then go in there and destroy Gaza. And you've seen other people, um, especially the voices um, uh, amplified of some of the grieving family members saying, you know, we don't want revenge. We don't think that anything good will come of this war. But I would say that, you know, if you're going to, it's always tricky to identify a mainstream. So with that caveat in mind, I'll say that the mainstream Israelis want a trade. And there is a slogan like prisoner exchange now. And a lot of people have put that up as a banner. A lot of Israelis have put that up as a banner on their Facebook and uh, Twitter accounts, prisoner exchange now. Yeah, but on the far right, which, as Nogo explained, Netanyahu was brought into power basically to prop himself up. On the far right, there is a lot more hostility towards the host. Am I right in saying that? Yes, you're right. Again, it's difficult to quantify, but there are there there are you know um, these diehard Bibi is the king, nobody but Bibi, far right supporters who have sort of bought into Netanyahu's really manipulative claim that the families of the hostages have prioritized the well-being and safe return of their 
of their family members, of their loved ones over the success of the military campaign in Gaza, and that we might have to make a choice for the greater good. Um, and, you know, these never, these only BB King of Israel types are kind of like never Trumpers. There's just nothing you can say or do to dissuade them from their kind of cultish loyalty to the prime minister. Yeah, and they have been out at some so, you know, so the, these people who are, you know, adamantly supportive of Netanyahu's position, no matter what, like his true blue um, base, there, there's nothing you can do or say to dissuade them from their support any more than you could do anything or just to dissuade the hardcore Trump supporters from their position. You know, it, it's really a sort of a, a cultish stance. And those people are out there. They've Whatever Netanyahu says is true. If Netanyahu says that these families of the hostages are left wingers who are anti-Netanyahu, who are trying to, you know, suggest that their, that their loved ones should be saved at the expense of the greater good for the country's security. And security is a big word in Israel. It's a big priority. You know, so they will go out and attack the families who are standing a vigil outside the prime minister's house demanding a prisoner exchange. They will go and attack them and say, you're traitors to the country by prioritizing the well-being of your personal, your of your loved ones over the greater good, the security of the country. Circling back quickly to the prisoner exchange then, Obviously, the prisoner exchange, there's thousands of Palestinian de detainees in Israeli prisons. I mean, could you talk a little bit more about who exactly these people are, who it is that they're suggesting should be released in exchange for the hostages? Well, there, there's um, political prisoners. It, it's very common for Palestinians to be arrested um, and detained, you know, for at least a year on, on kind of not Trump, maybe trumped up charges sometimes, but um, the military courts in Israel, which is where Palestinians are tried, I'm talking about the Palestinians who live under occupation in the West Bank, they have a 99% conviction rate. So people are often just, you know, if you're arrested, it means you're going to go to jail. Whether or not you did what you're accused of doing, the court has a 99% conviction rate. And these are military courts, so it's just a military judge and the proceedings are conducted in Hebrew. So, you know, there are thousands of people who were arrested on suspicion of you know, political involvement or throwing stones or sitting and discussing their desire to take revenge on Israel. Like, Ahed, sorry, Ahed Tamimi, for example, was arrested a couple of nights ago after she tweeted some pretty violent language against Israel, but she didn't do anything. She's like, I want, I, I don't remember the exact language, but I think she used some sort of Holocaust imagery, which was disturbing and her tweet was you know disturbing to read but again it's language but the soldiers arrived at her house in the middle of the night photographed her in her bedroom dragged out of bed and they took her off to jail so there are thousands of people like that who've been arrested for saying things or for maybe throwing stones at soldiers or and all sorts of things like that you can also just be detained at a checkpoint and the soldiers might look at your phone and see that you have you know, politi political messages or videos or photographs that uh, are pro-Palestine or anti-Israel, and, and you can get arrested and detained and thrown into the system for that. And also, I, I believe there are, you know, quite a few political activists who, you know, women who uh, were pregnant when they were arrested and have children. So there are children in, there are Palestinian children in Israeli jails who were born to Palestinian mothers who were detained 
uh, when they were pregnant and had their babies in jail. And and I think, I mean, I know that there was a very big story about the workers from Gaza who were um, legally in Israel and had rounded up, arrested, stripped of their possessions and sent back to Gaza. But I believe there are you know, there are quite a few people from Gaza who over the years infiltrated searching for work that was covered by the Israeli media in Hebrew, but not in English. And some of them are probably in hiding and, and some of them were arrested at some point and are in jail. So there's a mix of people who are political activists who were arrested just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and so forth and so on. And I, I believe the number I saw in the Hebrew media was around 5,000 prisoners, give or take. So a lot of people. I wanted to know more about the Palestinian detainees who make up the other half of the Slogan's equation, and who, like the hostages in Gaza, are trapped in desperate conditions by powers entirely beyond their control. And so I caught up with Musna Shihabi, an international development expert and a former advisor to the Palestinian negotiation team in the 1990s. I began by asking her if she had any idea how many Palestinian people had been detained. Well, according to Palestinian officials, the number has doubled. Almost before October 7th, there were around 5,200 Palestinians in Israeli prisons. And since October 7th, the number has risen to 10,000. So that makes it almost double. And I'd like to get a better idea of who it is exactly that these people are that are being arrested. I mean, what sort of background on the whole do these people come from? Uh, yeah, they have arrested laborers from Gaza, around 4,000 people after the attacks of October 7th. They were working in Israel. They also arrested lots of people in the West Bank, around 2,000 people arrested in the West Bank, including Palestinians who were released during a deal a few years ago. And now they are back into Israeli prisons. This is a usual pattern that we have seen. When I lived there, I had many friends whose partners were out of prisons, then again inside the prisons. So it's never ending. And what authority are these people being arrested under? So it depends. I mean, there are, you know, cases where they would tell you that these kids have thrown rocks on Israeli soldiers and they have been arrested. Some kids, you know, I have a friend, for example, Rania Khouri in Jerusalem, whose child is only 16. He was arrested in the middle of the night from his bedroom in East Jerusalem. And he went to jail for many months. There was no accusation whatsoever against him. And then when he was out, he was under house arrest, so he couldn't even go to school before October 7th. That was last year. I can tell you stories of people. I have a friend, for example, she was, you know, a very peaceful woman, not even going to demonstrations. And she was studying at the American University in Beirut. She was coming back to the West Bank to visit her parents. She wanted to cross a checkpoint to go to Jerusalem. She had a permit. She's a Palestinian Christian. And uh, there was a soldier on the checkpoint who spit at her. So she was she got angry because there was no reason. She was just waiting. And she the, there was a chair close to the soldier. So she just took the chair and beat him. 
And that was almost the end of her life. She went to prison. Her father had to pay lots of money. And they said, you are not allowed to leave the country for five years. So she lost even her uh, education at the American University in Beirut. And so what sort of recourse is there for Palestinians who are detained like this, or for their families, in fact? I mean, this is part of, you know, the occupation policies. This is only one box. It's many boxes. The occupation, the Israeli occupation on Palestinians, you know, it's a whole package of oppression, including imprisonment. I mean, I think that 800,000 Palestinians have been in Israeli prisons from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, And this is a huge number, considering that we are uh, 2 million in Gaza and 3 million in the West Bank. There is no accountability for Israel. It's an occupation power. And the fact that Palestinians have to go through a different legislation system, which is the military system, rather than the Israelis, it's different. And this is why we talk about apartheid. The Palestinian prisoners' rights watchdog, Adamir, has reported quite widespread human rights abuses against detainees. And I believe ministers from the Palestinian Authority have reported much the same. So could you talk a bit more about that? What sort of conditions are these people being kept under? Yes, just to give you an example, lately there are many Palestinian political prisoners in Mejiddo prison. And last Sunday, Israeli criminals were there to help the prison guards attack Palestinian political prisoners inside the prison. So this is one of the things. And all the prisoners, even the old ones before October 7th, they are denied their full rights. They have no books. They took from them all the books that they had, their clothes also. They have nowhere to sleep, so they sleep on the floor. I mean, it has been a kind of, you know, rage against these Palestinian prisoners. Two Palestinian prisoners died inside the prisons, and we don't know how they died. There are a number of minors also who are in prisons, like the the young lady whose name is Ahed, and she was taken from her room at dawn last Monday. And Ahed is a very well-known person, and there is even a book about her story. She is someone who was arrested when she was very young, and she was imprisoned for eight months because she slapped an Israeli soldier. And she slapped the soldier because she lost her cousin. I mean, she was faced with lots of oppression in front of her from her childhood. So I want to move on a bit. And I wanted to ask you about this slogan that some of the families of the hostages held by Hamas have adopted, everyone for everyone. And what some of them have been campaigning for is, well, exactly that, everyone for everyone, a prisoner swap to release all the Palestinians held in Israeli custody in exchange for all the hostages held by Hamas. That seems like quite a radical proposal, right? I don't think it's a radical proposal. I would agree fully with it. I think that we are all hostages on this territory. I mean, I fully understand looking at what happened on October 7th and the images and the videos. I mean, where were the security at that time? So I think that all the people uh, on this land, whether Israelis or Palestinians, whether Jewish, Muslims, Christians, you name it, all of the land, because we are controlled by Israel. So I think that Hamas is only a result of Israeli policies. 
And when we talk about, you know, freeing everybody, I totally agree with it. And I think that everybody on this land, whether Israeli or Palestinian, is a victim of Israeli policies. And so do you think there's any real prospect for a prisoner swap? Well, I'm very optimistic about having one state for everybody to live there and to have a democracy with full rights for every citizen, no matter where they come from. It shouldn't be called a Jewish state. It shouldn't be called a Muslim state. It shouldn't be called a Christian state. It's just a state, you know, with democracy, uh, with a system that gives equality to all the people living on this. Muslim Shihabi speaking to me from Paris. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. Thank you again to all our guests. This week's episode was produced and hosted by me, Joshua Martin. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.